Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. He sat there and he stared through the television while it was on. And he could hear the voices kind of in the background of ESPN kind of going but he wasn't thinking about it. He just sat there with his hand in that comfortable spot just inside of the waistband of his gym shorts. And he sat there and thought about like, how did I get here? How did I end up like this with this bowling ball on my lap? And as he sat there, he didn't realize that time was just wasting away. He didn't realize that he meant to get up in the early morning before the sun came up and the sun was now up. And he also didn't notice his wife shuffling through the living room as she woke up and started her morning routine. But she noticed him. And because she's gracious and she's loving and she's kind, she doesn't start with an accusation. She starts with a polite question. Oh, did you already finish your run? They both know the answer. And he can't work up the courage, I will, to be honest, a bunch of excuses go on in his mind and <laughs> he knows none of them will suffice. And, and before he can even say anything, just sound comes out of his, <laughs> out of his mouth. Oh yeah, 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 I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do it right now. And so he, he musters all the courage he can to get up and do what he was supposed to do. And as he gets up, he makes that sound you make when you hit a certain age and you're out of shape, you know that. And he heads out the door. And he gets out the door and he starts, he starts running and he starts feeling like, you know what, this ain't too bad. This is actually kind of nice. This is, this is good. Maybe I'm Mr. Running Guy. Maybe this is my thing now. He gets going a little further. I think I'll do like two miles today. Why not? That'd be a good place to start, you know, two miles. And as he's going, he starts getting this fire in his chest. But not that kind of fire that like gets you pumped up, like physically burning in his lungs. He's worn out. His back gets tired. His legs start getting, ah, maybe I'll just do one mile. He goes a little further. He's a little more winded. I'll just go around the block. You know, you don't want to start too strong. As he gets going and going, you know, his, his body's not used to this. They don't know that he's starting a new routine, so they're sending signals to the brain. Heart, lungs, feet, back, like, stop, we're dying. This is not normal. And so he stops, and he, he hunches over, and he's breathing heavy. <sighs> and kind of defeated, he walks back home the way he came. And he gets through the door, kind of defeated, and at the spot, like, like this is not what I meant to be. I, I wanted to be a guy that's in shape, that can do things. I want to get healthy. I want to do it for my family and for my kids, but I, it's just too hard. And before he can say a word or think a thought, before his wife notices just how defeated he looks, she says, hey, I'm really glad you signed up for that marathon. I think it's going to do wonders for you. I'm really excited. I think it's going to be something good. And he doesn't have the courage to quit. 
all right, well, I've, you know, I've got to do something. I've got to figure this out. I've signed up. So he, he does what every good uh, athlete does. He Googles. And he gets on the computer and he starts typing in, you know, uh, how to prepare for a marathon. That's probably my, my, my problem is I don't have the right routine. I've got to figure this out. And as he's, he's Googling, he finds the best runner in the world. And he starts looking at his story and, and what he does. And he gets really inspired he gets so far into it, he's, he's looking at what kind of shoes he wears, what kind of power bars he eats, what kind of nutrition he has, what kind of routine he does, and it, they have it all listed. And he gets excited, because he's like, he's like, here it all is, you know, this is what I, I could do, I could just do what this guy does, and I'd be set. But then as he starts to look at all the things he does, and how terrifying that is, like, there's no way I could run that much, there's no way I can dedicate that much time. He starts to be overwhelmed. But then he goes, he thinks about his, the what, what kind of person he wants to be. He goes, you know what? Screw it, I'll do it, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just go full, full bore, I'll do what he does. Cue the eye of the tiger and, and in your minds run the montage of him and he actually starts to try and do it, right? Sweat band on, Gatorade in hand and he's, he's thinking he looks like the guy in the commercial with the orange sweat. But he starts doing it day after day after day, and he actually is starting to kind of get in shape, and he's starting to get, feel good. He changes the way he eats. He changes the way he lives his days. And it sounds like that would be a good story if we just got there and he made it to the marathon. But truth be told, there was a rift between him and his family because now he's working full time and he's spending all of his time at the gym. He goes, he gets up in the morning, goes and runs, goes to work, comes home, runs, comes home, goes to sleep. He's getting distance between him and his wife. He's getting distance between him and his friends too because not only does he not have time for them, but when they do hang out, to be quite honest, he's a bit of a jerk. He looks down on them because they don't eat like he does. They don't sacrifice as much as he does. They don't work out as hard as he does. So he keeps going though, because he's gotta, get, he's gotta get in shape, he's gotta do this marathon. And somewhere along the lines, he's not sure when, his back starts hurting, and it's aching. And he thinks, no pain, no gain, right? I just gotta push through it. But it gets worse the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and his knees start to hurt. And eventually, he keeps trying to push through, but he gets to this point where he can't even walk. And his wife goes, you need to see the doctor. So he goes to the doctor, and the doctor looks at him, and he says, well, you look a lot better than you did at your annual checkup. You lost some weight and stuff. Uh, uh, what brings you in? He goes, well, you know, I've been working out really hard, and, and I, I signed up for this marathon, so I, you know, it'd give me reason and purpose to get in shape, and, and I'm gonna do it. And uh, in all that, I was working out, and now my back hurts, and now I can hardly walk, and all these things. And the doctor goes, okay, okay, well, tell me what kind of workouts you're doing. And this is where he gets real excited because he's been working hard and he's got this whole routine. He goes, words are flying out. Like, I do this many this and this, that, and this. And I keep this type of schedule and I, I eat soy and I do all this stuff. And I eat these Nutri-Grain bars and this things and this gluten-free, blah, 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 blah. And the doctor goes, uh, wow, that's pretty intense. In fact, um, you know, that might be too intense for you. How much sleep are you getting? Well, not very much, because I gotta keep this routine. Yeah, you're not a professional athlete. 
you work a full-time job. You can't do that. And this, this kind of diet you're looking at, that's, that's made for this young, small-framed guy. You're not that guy. You, you, you got to eat a little more. What kind of shoes you wearing? Well, this guy wears these shoes. Yeah, but you have these type of arches. That's, that's going to cause back problems. You're, you're, you're not meant to, to run like this guy. And he gets a little bit defeated. Like, yeah, I've been working so hard, now you just kind of pulled the rug out from underneath of me. So what are you saying, Doc? You're saying I, I shouldn't work out, that I should just give up this, trying to be healthy, all this stuff. No, I'm not saying that. Are you saying I should, I should quit my job and become a professional runner? I'm definitely not saying that. I'm saying you need to run like you need to run. You need to find the routine and the diet that was designed for you. And I think a lot of times our Christian life looks like this. Uh, if we experience it like this. We get saved and we think like the church is full of all these do's and don'ts and we get a little bit overwhelmed at first. Like, oh, and maybe some of you came in the door for the first time in a long time because you thought, yeah, that's all the church. I know what they're not about and what they're about and what I have to do and what I don't have to do and all these sorts of things or what I'm supposed to never do by penalty of death. And then you, sometimes you move beyond that and you get to this point where you're like, I'm gonna be the super guy and you, you think like, I can do this, this, and this and you get legalistic about it and you start applying that to your friends and they get distant from you. But the point is, is that we are all designed to, to run the way we are designed to run. Winning looks different for each of us and as we start this new series, that's kind of the idea. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and on, where, where Paul is writing to the church, and he's had to deal with all of these problems. This is a church he planted. He planted some pretty bad churches. We got proof of it in here. And he's, he's dealing with all these issues where they're like, uh, should we do this? Should we do this or not do this? So what kind of Christians do we have to be to check all the boxes? And, and in the, in where we're going in this series, Paul's going to go, do what you got to do to run to win. Here's what he says in chapter 9. He says this. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you might obtain it. That's kind of where the idea is, run to win. Run like you're, you're, with everything you got. But then he says this in chapter 7. It's interesting, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So we're gonna look at a passage tonight, right in chapter seven, where he kind of shifts tone. And I, I'm, it's one of those passages that you have to be real careful, you have to add in the context, because if you read it in a vacuum, you're gonna get some weird stuff. Um, but he's gonna talk about marriage and, and sex and all these things, and if you just take that and apply it, you're gonna come up with some weird theology. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here's what he says, chapter seven, verse one. Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. But likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God and one of a kind and one of another. Right there in verse one, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now it's important that we realize what's happening here. Paul isn't making like a theological statement of the purpose of marriage. He's answering a question. They wrote him and said, hey Paul, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? This is what he's answering. He's not, he's not stating the purpose and the cause and the existence of, of marriage by saying this. But because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You see, he's, he's moving from thought because in the previous passage, he just told them to flee from all sexual immorality. And then he remembered as he was giving them that, like this big like indictment, like you gotta get yourself, your body isn't for you to just do whatever you want with it. Your body exists for the purpose and the glory of God. So glorify God in your bodies. And then he remembered, oh, but they wrote me this weird thing. Like, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Is it good for us not to get married, not to have sex ever? Like, they were in their church setting this bar of like, to be a real Christian, never have sex ever. That's what you're gonna do. In fact, if you have it in the King James, it says, don't even touch a woman, right? Because the word there is to touch, and where it says sexual relations, but it's an idiom of the day, kind of like sleeping with each other. Don't touch each other. And Paul says, no. Because of sexual immorality, because of the temptation of lust in your hearts, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband. He's telling them this because he knows they live in Corinth. Corinth is the most debauched place you could ever imagine. In fact, the way the pagan surrounding, like some of these Christians used to go to the temple to worship by sleeping with the temple prostitutes. This is what they lived in. He goes, look, I know what's outside your doors. Most of you guys need to get married. It's not like this is why you get married, so that you can satisfy this and not have to worry about it, but he's saying it would be dumb to not have sex. And he's also saying this because the married men are saying this. They're saying, hey, should we just not ever sleep with our wives? And then he goes on, he says this, Uh, Verse three through four. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. First off, notice the equality and um, notice the order, the, uh, notice the equality and the motive here. The equality, he used the word likewise twice in a row on purpose. He's saying, give to them their due rights. It's interesting, um, the word there is duty. Like when you're married, this is part of your duty. This is the culmination of who you are, like what you've committed to. They didn't use the term conjugal rights. In fact, in the King James, it says your due benevolence, the due goodness, godly goodness that is owed to the other. 
And this isn't meant to be a verse to pummel the spouse over with in order to get what you want. In fact, if you notice, what he's saying here is, don't think about yourself, think about the other. You don't even have authority over your own body. They do. That's what you committed to when you got married. And, and they don't have authority over their own body, you do. It's this idea of putting their needs in front of your own, and if you both do that, you, you'll find that it works out pretty well. It works out pretty well. But I think another interesting thing is the order at which he does it, right? Because then, you know, you've always heard the joke, the guy's like, oh yeah, she's, she wants me every night, you know, and that's, everybody laughs, because that's not typically how it goes in our culture, right? But he says, give to your wives their conjugal rights, because what was happening in the church was these married guys were saying, we'll just, we won't have sex with our wives. And they were setting their marriage up for failure. Why were they doing this? Well, we already know earlier in the book, right, Paul's addressing these issues in the church, and part of the church was going, hey, we're team Apollos over here, and then the other guys are going, we're team Paul, and we're cool because we follow Apollos, we're cool because we follow Paul, and Paul's like, uh, remember the gospel? Like, neither of us are the big deal. Jesus is. And I think these Paul worshipers were looking at Paul because Paul is a single guy, which we'll find out more about later in this passage. And they're going, we, we should be like him. He's like, you're, you're ruining your wives. And I think it's also because they lived in a culture that was so sexually immoral, the climate there, you know, with the temple prostitutes and all this stuff. These guys came out of that, and now they're just kind of messed up sexually. It's interesting there. I think there's a parallel to what our culture is. Like, I hesitate to say this is a male problem. It's like just as much a female problem here, and I think it might be in our day as well. We live in a culture so bombarded with pornography and sexual immorality that there's actually all these studies where these guys have been addicted to pornography so long, they've lived in this, that has rewired their brains, and they don't even want sex anymore. It's crazy. That's why your TV is bombarded with blue pill commercials. And I think some of this was happening now and live such a debauched life that Paul's going, look, you, you've signed up for this. This is what, how you honor God in this. It's interesting, to say the least. Then he goes on and he says, so don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what he, he starts with this command, and then he, he gives an exception to the command, and gives the, the terms of the, of the exception, and then he gives a warning. So, so he gives this command, he says, do not deprive one another. Don't do that. If you're gonna do that, you know, do it for a limited time, agree about it, and do it for a reason. And he gives this warning, because if you, if, if you are just depriving one another, you're setting each other up for failure. And I, what I don't want to do is, is uh, have this whole sermon be about, like, don't deprive, like, here's, just hear me on this. In a marriage, sex is the expression and the full culmination of intimacy. 
It's the physical expression that God designed for intimacy. The two become one flesh. And in a marriage, if it's not happening, doesn't mean you go, well, these are my rights. It says here in uh, 1 Corinthians, that's not gonna go over too well. What you need to do is be concerned about the other. You need to be concerned always about the other. And if you're the one on this side going, well, we haven't done in a while, I don't, maybe you need to start asking some questions. What have I done to fulfill their needs? What have I done to, to what about their right to be romanced and loved? And if you're sitting on this side, don't just go, well, I'll just give in because that's what I'm supposed to do in order to make him. No, I, I, I'm telling you, the other person wants you to want them, right? I'm sure like 40% of you just in your head went, I want you to want me. That's why I acknowledge it, so we can move on. This is a marriage. You signed up to be a picture. See, this is why this isn't a theology about marriage. Because marriage was meant, and Paul says it elsewhere, that it's meant to be a picture of who God is. This loving, grace-giving, life-giving thing. In fact, in the very first book, he says, be fruitful and multiply. That's like one of the first commandments. So obviously, what Paul's not saying here is like, yeah, yeah, you should be single, and we'll get to that here. Everybody has to be this way. So let me, let me move on. He goes to a warning, and this is kind of interesting. He says, he says, do it for a limited time so that Satan, so that you will not be tempted because of your lack of self-control. And I started to think, okay, what does he mean by self-control? So I was looking up the word that he used for self-control, and I couldn't find it because it's actually one word for lack of self-control is one word in the Greek. It's this concept of uh, not having control over your body specifically. Really, it could be like incontinence is actually what it says in there. Incontinence. You can't control yourself. Like, essentially, Paul's saying, if you can't control your bowels, don't run around a lot without a diaper. Right? And I know some of you are like, potty humor. The lowest form of humor. It's all right. Ease up. Take off your monocle and your golden encrusted pocket watch and just listen. There's an important point here. If you run around and you're depriving one another, you're gonna make a mess. It's gonna be a, a lot of work to clean up. And that's what Paul's like, don't do that. Don't do that because this is important. Don't do that because you signed up for something very important. So if you're gonna do it, do it, agree about it, do it for a limited time and do it for a reason. Do it because you're gonna pray to God, because you're gonna devote each yourselves to God, but then come back together again quick. You don't wanna give Satan that foothold. So then he says this, uh, verse six. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. Notice he like really makes sure that you know this is like a concession, this is not a command, this is a preface, like this isn't, but I kind of wish that everybody was single like I am, because Paul's single at this time. And he's saying that because um, later on you'll read and he's gonna talk about how um, the single person can devote themselves to God in this way that a married person cannot. But he doesn't call it a command because he knows like, first off, uh, we need to have children, otherwise we, we cease to exist. 
Second off, he, he knows that throughout the scripture, in fact, in other places, he talks about how a marriage is, is the picture of Christ and the church and how it's a great thing. But Paul's single. And it's very interesting because if you know anything about the history of Paul, he was probably married at some point. He had to have been. He was a, he was a member of the Council of the Sanhedrin and by Jewish law, to be a member of the Council of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. And he's a Jew above all Jews. He keeps every law. So, and it was very important in Jewish culture to get married and have kids. And we don't know, there's not much written about Paul's wife, but we can, she might have passed away and he's just chosen to live his life like this. Or what some people think is more likely is that when Saul, the persecutor of the church, became a Christian. It cost him his, his, everything. And so he's saying to them, you know, I, I wish that's, uh, that, that you guys, but that's not how it goes. He says in verse, uh, verse seven this, but each has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. I love how he says that, but each has their own gift. He doesn't say, yeah, I wish people were like that, but they're not, you know, not everybody can handle it. Not everybody can do it like I can do it, you know. I've got the good gift, and you have the curse of being married. That's not what he says. What he's saying is we each have our own gift, one of a kind and one to another. The word gift there is the, the word basically where we get the idea of charisma. It's this God-given gift, something you can earn, something you can work towards. It's just this natural ability. And Paul's saying, I, we each have our own gift. Some people have the gift of marriage, and some people have the gift of celibacy. And I, I love that. I love the idea that, that they're each their own gift, God-given gift, because if Paul was probably honest, like, he could not do the marriage thing well. Look at the guy. He's running all over the place. He's completely involved. He sees the church as his children, and, and that's, that's it. Like, he's off doing that thing. That wife would have been starved to death. He's so engrossed in the, the purpose and what he's got to do. He can't display God in that image well. And I think about, you know, I was talking about this verse with a couple of other pastors and they're saying, yeah, you know, sometimes I love being married. I think it's amazing. But I think like I could do more for God if I wasn't married. I was thinking about that and I was thinking, actually I can't. And that's what Paul's saying. All I would do, I could not run for God as fast as I can because I'd just be tripped up in my own sexual immorality. God didn't design me for that gift. Most of us aren't designed for that gift. So what, what Paul's doing here, and I love how Wayne Grudem explains this verse. He says this on it. Go to the quote on there. Speaking of this verse in particular, there Paul does not say that it is wrong to marry, but rather views marriage as something good, a right and a privilege that may be given up for the sake of the kingdom. That's the idea, it's this gift. You, you, you can have this gift or you can have this gift. And if you don't have this gift, don't try to live like you do because you're just gonna end up in trouble. 
Don't try to run some and keep some sort of regimen or routine that you were never meant to keep. That's what he's saying. So it isn't really a question of should I get married or not, but rather what gift has God given me so that I can run after him with everything that I've got? And a lot of times we do marriage sermons and, and, we, and the single person in the room is sitting there like, okay, you know, and they're like, what's this picture of God and all this stuff? And, and they're just sitting there going, okay, I guess I'm half of a picture and I don't know. I love this because what Paul's saying is, no, actually you can do different things for God. It's a gift. And if you have that gift, what are you doing with it? Each of us have certain disciplines we have to keep in order to live the life that God has assigned to us. Each of us has certain disciplines that we have to keep in order to live the life that God has assigned to us. It's right there in in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him into which God has called him. This is my rule in the churches. And I love that because a lot of times we think of church and we think of like rules, like do this, don't do that, do this. And Paul's like, no, actually it's pretty freeing. My list is, is do what it takes to glorify God with everything you've got. And you gotta have that caveat. It's not some sort of excuse to just remain in whatever sin you got. No, this is my gift, the gift of sinning. No, that's not your gift. You have to run it up against how hard can you run for God that you might obtain the prize. And some of you have to get married because if you don't, you're just gonna be tripping over yourself the whole time. You didn't take the incontinence pill and you gotta stop every so often. And some of you, you don't need, you don't need to get married. In fact, that would trip you up more. And I could list specific examples in history of of incredible church men for God that probably should have never gotten married because their marriage was not a picture of who God is. And so if you're sitting here, here's how I want you to think about this this passage as we kind of wind down. The application is this, add discipline where necessary so you can run as hard as you can for God. For the married person in here, if you're married, if you're sitting here like, maybe I should have never gotten married, I can clear that up for you too. Um, If you're married, God called you to marriage. Simple. So if you're married, I would ask you, how can you fully give yourself to that so that it speaks great of who God is? And that's what you need to do. And whatever things you're throwing up in the roadblocks and, and you're, you're either just, just demanding things or you're depriving each other, you need to go, when was the last time I thought about how I'm glorifying God in our marriage? When was the last time I thought about their needs, their rights, and realized that my body's not my own, but I gave it to them? And so when they say, hey, I'm not in the mood, maybe you need to just take a second and go, How can I worship God in this moment? By honoring them. And if somebody's lacking for intimacy, maybe you need to recover that as well. If you're sitting in here and you're single and you're going, thank God for once I don't have to, like the application isn't I need to get married right away. And you're sitting here like, I'm tired of the sermons of of like, if I'm not married, I'm not living my life properly. And there's more to come in the passage 
But I would ask you this, God gave you a gift. And maybe you're single right now and you want to be married later, but right now is a season where God has given you the gift of singleness. Some of you are going, that doesn't feel like a gift. But what can you do for God in this season where you can only be, you can, you can devote all your attention, all your effort, all your energy on him? And for those of you sitting in here who are single and you're just struggling with sexual immorality, sexual sin, and you're fighting it and you're going, you're like, okay, good. I know now I got to get married. That's the only way I'm going to fix this thing. I'm going to give you, I'm going to say something that might seem a bit awkward, um, but I think it's true. And I've even heard guys like Ravi Zacharias admit the same thing. It's interesting. I've been married now for 10 years. And when I first got married, I, I love my wife. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. I really believe that. But I thought when I married her that all that temptation would just magically disappear because now I have this beautiful bride. And it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way on purpose. So if you're thinking like, oh, I'll just get married and I'll fix everything, God's still got work to do in your heart. And you can either work on it now or you can work on it later because marriage is not some magical one that changes who you are. It just adds weight and emphasizes who you are. And now you're going to have to deal with that. So I would warn you to deal with that. And if you're married and you're still there, I would warn you to deal with that. Do whatever it takes, like we talked about in Colossians, to put sin to death. Don't make it a, a backyard project that you're working on. Put it to death. There are certain disciplines in your life because you were designed to live in this type of way. There's certain disciplines in your life that you have to set up in order to run for God as hard as you can. Parameters you have to set up. Disciplines like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna own a phone anymore. Fine, if that's what it takes. But don't do it legalistically and try to apply it to other people. That's the other application. Whatever discipline you have that God's called you to, make sure it's not some sort of discipline that's for you that you're trying to apply broadly. That's where legalism comes from. That's where works-based salvation comes from. That's what these guys were doing. Hey, Paul, it's good for, not, for all of us not to have sexual relations, right? That's what it takes to be a Christian like you. He's like, no, not my point. So run the race as hard as you can. I'm gonna pray for us. And I wanna close with this verse out of chapter nine. It says this. Do, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We live holy lives and we discipline ourselves not to earn the gospel, but for the sake of it, for the sake of our witness, for the sake of proclaiming how great God is. So I ask you again, what gift has God given you? And how, are, how will you use it to run after him with everything you've got? Let's pray. 
God, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We thank you for the fact and the truth that you died and you rose again and how that changes everything. I pray that your spirit would stir up in our hearts what you need it to stir up. That we would understand that you've paid for our sins, but to go on sinning would be a waste. You made us to gallop. You made us to run free. So may we glorify you in our bodies. May we realize that we are not our own, but we were bought with a price. And that price was your perfect and precious son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.